Welcome to Bible and Bourbon with Pastor Ben. Today we are going to be covering the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We'd like to start with our prayer request. Miss Catherine has asked us to pray for her church. She is a member of a small church in a rural area, and like so many other churches, they have experienced a decline in membership since COVID, and they've never really rebounded. Their pastor just retired, and she doesn't think they'll be able to find a new one. She's asking for wisdom from God for her church leadership team about what they should do next. I know that her church and many others are going through similar situations right now, and we are in prayer with you. So please continue to send any prayer requests or joys to BiblePeriodBourbon at gmail.com. If you do not want me to share your prayer request with the broader community, please let me know in the email, and I will keep your prayer request in my personal prayers, but not share it to our community here. Today, I am drinking Maker's Mark mixed with a flat Diet Coke with no ice cubes. Before I get too many emails, I do not prefer flat Coke or to drink my mixed drinks without ice. I've learned from the first few times of recording this podcast that you cannot edit out the fizz of Coke. So if I want to drink a bourbon and Coke, it has to be flat without ice. Though I would not recommend you drink the same. Now, let's start our study with a prayer. Almighty Father, we pray as your children that this study of Scripture might help guide us to the great knowledge of your love and compassion. The words of Scripture are the truest testament of your grace, and we hope that as we read and study those words, your grace may come into our very soul. Let this not be the best part of our day, but only a building block to something better to come. Amen. Now, let me grab my glass, and let's get started. Before we jump into our scripture reading today, I would like to give us a little bit of background on the Gospel of Matthew. It is one of the synoptic Gospels, along with Mark and Luke. Together, they are called the synoptic Gospels because they are quite similar to each other in composition and structure. You'll often find entire paragraphs that are word-for-word copies of one another. Most scholars agree that Mark was the first gospel written, and it seems like both Matthew and Luke copied extensively from Mark. And this is not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that they were just plagiarizing the gospel of Mark like some dishonest student. Their copying had a purpose. These authors wanted their gospels to be incredibly similar. If you have three sources, and all three sources say the exact same thing, then you can reasonably assume that what they're saying is correct. Out of the 661 verses of the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Matthew includes, in some form, 600 of them. That means there's only 61 verses in the Gospel of Mark that aren't in the Gospel of Matthew. In addition, there are some 220 verses shared between Matthew and Luke that are not in Mark. So in all, 820 of the verses of Matthew are contained in one of the other synoptic Gospels. But even with these similarities, there are differences between the Gospel of Matthew and these other two Gospels, particularly in who the original audience was. For the other Gospels, their original audience was primarily Gentile. They weren't Jewish. But the Gospel of Matthew seems to reach out to those Jewish Christian communities. 
Some people have even debated whether Matthew was originally written Aramaic instead of Greek like the other Gospels. But the only manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Matthew are all in Greek, so if it was written in Aramaic, which would have been the language that the Jewish people spoke back then, that copy has been lost to us today. But also, remember there's nothing special about a language. The Spirit can speak to us in Hebrew, Latin, Greek, Aramaic, or even to us today in English. But even if the first copy of the Gospel of Matthew was written in Greek, the Gospel itself has always been connected to the Jewish Christian community. People have seen it as bridging the gap between the Jewish faith before Jesus and how Jews would later embrace Christianity. Because how a Jew would embrace Christianity was different than how a Gentile or pagan might embrace it. The tensions between these two groups were a constant theme in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see a lot of quotes from Hebrew scriptures, ways that the traditions of the Jewish faith had been brought to life or modified with Christ. Based on the composition of the Gospel of Matthew, particularly how some verses seem to refer to the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, we can assume that it was written somewhere between 80 and 90 AD. But the exact date doesn't really matter to our understanding of the Gospel. The Gospel is still the Gospel. Whether it was written in 50 AD or 100 AD, that doesn't change a single word on a single page. The same is true for our next point, but it seems a bit stickier for a lot of people. The Gospel of Matthew is still the Gospel of Matthew, even if the disciple Matthew wasn't the author. Nowhere in the Gospel of Matthew does it ever say that the disciple Matthew is the author of this text. Paul, in his letters, does a wonderful job of announcing that he is the author of the letter, but we don't have that same announcement in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, the earliest connection we have with this Gospel and the disciple Matthew comes in 125 AD, when Papias of Herapolis connects some writing with the disciple Matthew, even though it's not quite clear that this is the Gospel he's speaking of. And this is the very first time that anyone mentions that Matthew could have written this Gospel text. And at best, this is 35 or 40 years after the text was written. It is possible that Matthew wrote this gospel, or at least is in some way connected with it. And tradition may have passed down through the years that he was the original author. Or it could just be an anonymous Jewish scholar who happened to convert to Christianity, and this was his way to reach out to the Jewish people and tell them the story of Christ. I want to be clear that neither interpretation is unbiblical. Nowhere in the original text does it ever say that it is the Gospel of Matthew. That nice little title we get, the Gospel of Matthew, was not in the original copy. It's something that people have added later on. So questioning if the disciple was truly the author does not change in any way the words of the Gospel or their importance. However, I'm still going to refer to this book as the Gospel of Matthew. Next week, I'm not going to start saying that we are studying the second chapter of some untitled gospel. It's been called the Gospel of Matthew since at least the second century, and we're still going to call it that today. 
even if we realize that any number of Jewish converts to Christianity could have written this book. But that's enough background. Let's jump into the text. Now, I'm not going to read for you all 17 verses of this first chapter that we're going over today, because it's a bit redundant. The first section of the first chapter is the genealogy of Jesus. It places him from Abraham to Joseph and Mary. So I'm going to read a few verses with the important names in them, and I'm going to skip over the ones that we're not going to discuss. Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, 5 through 6, and 16 through 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Prez and Zeruiah, whose mother was Tamar. Prez was the father of Herons, Herons the father of Ram. Verse 5. Samon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Verse 16. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, and the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile in Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, 5 through 6, and 16 through 17. If you're curious about the names that I skipped, because that's all I skipped, a list of names, you are more than happy to open your Bible and read them for yourselves. But I figured if I read them all, you would probably turn off the podcast or go to sleep. I know I would. But I'd like to start by going through why this list was included at all. First thing of note is that Matthew starts the gospel by telling us that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David and son of Abraham. That line is designed to show us a connective thread through Jesus, through David, to Abraham. David and Abraham were important people in the Jewish faith and history. David was the first good king, even though he was not the first king, and Abraham was the founding patriarch of the Jewish people. It's also interesting that the genealogy of Jesus is traced through Joseph's line. If you look at verse 16, you can see the careful wording that Matthew uses to describe Joseph. Joseph is not the father of Jesus, but merely the husband of Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. Joseph is Jesus' adoptive father. And for us, as a modern reader, it wouldn't make much sense for a genealogy to go through an adoptive father's line. But using the Hebrew custom of the time, this would have been the correct way for Jesus to track his lineage. All Hebrew blood was passed through their mother. If you were a Hebrew, you were a Hebrew because your mother was a Hebrew. So even if Joseph wasn't his biological father, his lineage, or his genealogy, would still come through Joseph's line. DNA was not known to the Hebrew people back then, and biological relationships didn't matter in the same way they do today. 
It was common for a widow to marry her deceased husband's younger brother and have a son with that younger brother who would then be counted as her deceased husband's child, even though the man was dead when the child was conceived. This makes no sense to us today, but for the Hebrew people, counting Jesus' ancestry through his adoptive father's line as if he was his biological son would make sense. Which is good, because Joseph had an impressive family history. Like all Jews, he was connected to Abraham. But from Abraham, he was connected to both David and Solomon. This is important, because the Messiah was to come from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. Therefore, the Messiah had to come from a line like Joseph's. Additionally, the genealogy is somewhat artificially divided into three equal sections. There were 14 generations that Matthew said from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the birth of Jesus. Some of these ancestors were important people that we find in other sections of the Bible. Others were less important, so I skipped over them because they are found nowhere else other than this genealogy. The fact that Matthew divided his genealogy into these sections further shows us that he was trying to reveal a gospel truth in this genealogy. He was using the genealogy as a way to convince people, particularly people with Jewish heritage, of Jesus' connection with God's larger plan. Jesus was 14 generations from a 14th generation from a 14th generation. All those numbers are round and orderly. Matthew is saying with this genealogy that Jesus was not an accident, but instead a plan since the very beginning, a plan made with Abraham. But for me, the most interesting part of this entire genealogy is the inclusion of four women. Genealogy was only tracked through men. Your grandmothers or great-grandmothers were of no real importance to you. So why does Matthew pick four women to mention in Jesus' line? We know that they weren't necessarily the most virtuous women. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were all Gentiles. And their inclusion in Jesus' ancestry would remind the Jewish people that the faith has always been open to foreigners. Christianity was gaining more followers in Gentile regions than it was in Hebrew ones, and this may have been the author's way to reassure the Jewish readers that this was okay, but that's not the only important note about these women. Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute in order to give birth to her son. Rahab did not have to disguise herself as a prostitute to have a son, because she already was a prostitute. Now, Ruth wasn't a prostitute, but she was also a foreigner who lived as a widow for a long time without getting married again until much later in life. She may have been viewed better than a prostitute, but not much. And the final of these four women, whose name isn't even mentioned, but she is instead called only by the act that she did. Her name's Bathsheba. She was Jewish, but she was also another man's wife when David first slept with her. Solomon, one of Jesus' forefathers, was a wonderful king, but he only came about because David and his mother Bathsheba committed adultery. Then David 
ordered Bathsheba's first husband killed in order to cover up the act. All of these four women were no Mother Mary. The women we find in Jesus' line, other than Mary, were not models of virtue. In fact, these women were often seen as outcasts on the fringes of society. But each of them, in their own way, contributed to something great in their lives, and through their line, they contributed to Jesus. This genealogy shows us not only the connection that Jesus had with the past Hebrew patriarchs, but also the connection he had to those people on the fringes of society. That even the outcast can do something great. The list of names we have here in the first part of the first chapter can seem mundane and boring, but it tells us something important. Jesus has always been part of God's plan. Since the very beginning of creation, Jesus' birth through Mary, with Joseph being his stepfather, was always the plan. And through Joseph's ancestry, you can tell that God's plan has always been to forgive, and that anyone can be used for God's mission. There's nothing you can do that God can't overcome. Next week, we will talk about the birth of Christ, or the Christmas story, as told to us in the Gospel of Matthew. If you are listening to this podcast in real time, It is nowhere near Christmas, but that doesn't mean we can't have a bit of Christmas spirit. As always, thank you for joining me today. If you have any questions over the material, please email me at bibleperiodbourbon at gmail.com. Additionally, if you do drink, please do so responsibly. While it is true that Jesus drank wine, an occasional glass is different than an addiction. If you need help, please seek it. If you need help but don't know where to look, please reach out to me and I'll be happy to guide you. Blessings everyone.